Welcome to Scholastic Reads, our podcast about books, authors, and the joy and power of reading. I'm your host, Suzanne McCabe, Editor-at-Large at Scholastic. Thank you for joining us. April is School Library Month, yet across the country, libraries are facing budget cuts and even closings. Studies show, nonetheless, that the school library is more important than ever. Scholastic's 2016 School Libraries Work Report confirmed the critical role that librarians play in schools. Today, we have with us in the studio, Demosa Weber Bay, who is our librarian at Scholastic, and John Schumacher, a.k.a. Mr. Shu, the ambassador for school libraries for Scholastic. Later on, we'll talk by phone with Christina Holzweiss, the 2015 School Librarian of the Year. First, we have Demosa here with us, of course, and the great Mr. Shu, whose reputation has preceded him. Welcome, Mr. Shu. Thank you for having me. We're delighted to have both of you here. Welcome, Demosa. Thank you for having me, too. Now, I have a few questions for both of you, and you can interact or jump in wherever you'd like. But my first question is, was there a librarian in your own childhood who was particularly influential? I talk about this a lot because I am obsessed with the question, what do you remember about your elementary school library? What do you remember about how you felt when you entered your elementary school library? What do you remember about the environment? What do you remember about how the environment smelled? And I ask this question always because I'm interested to know if people's experience with libraries, particularly at the elementary school level, influenced how they feel about libraries today. And I always get the most interesting responses when people answer that question. Sometimes they'll say, I was afraid to go to my library, or my library was a scary place, or my library uh, was a place where I felt welcome, where I felt invited. And we always have interesting conversations about their elementary school library. The reason I asked that question is because I had a horrible experience with libraries. Oh, no. I know. And some people say, well, how did you grow up to be a librarian if you didn't have positive experiences? In elementary school, the library was a no zone. The library was a shush zone. The library wasn't a place where I felt welcome or invited. I remember often having stomach aches on library day because oh. I, I didn't want to enter that space. But it was, when I was in um, working on my first master's degree in teaching, we had to do a project where we had to evaluate a periodical. And my program was in a school library. It was a cohort model. And when we assigned this, I spotted a copy of School Library Journal on the librarian's desk. And I stole the copy of oh. <laughs> School Library Journal. And I was like, oh, I wow. need this. And so, Confessions. Confessions of Mr. Drew. So I, I took it home and I read it. And I saw, well, wow, look at libraries are very different 
from how they were when, when I was a child. And there's so many awesome things happening in school libraries that I want to create a library for kids that was the opposite of the experience that I had. That I have the power now to create positive experiences right. for kids. Um, when Katie Camillo was our national ambassador for young people's literature, her platform was Stories Connect Us. And in my library, that's what I always tried to show my students, that stories connect us, that stories lead us to joy. So my negative experiences with libraries growing up have created a positive experience as an adult, though, because I see how libraries can transform lives, how libraries can change lives. And I never want a student to leave my library feeling as though a library is not a place that respects you or a place that honors what you, how you feel, what you believe in, et cetera. Before we get to Demosa here, how did you become such a voracious reader if your library was so intimidating? Yeah. My grandmother always read to me. My grandmother always bought me books and showed me the value of reading. Um, I, I had a teacher in fifth grade named Dr. Mary Margaret Reed, oh and goodness. she was bigger than life. She wore purple every day. She was sparkly. She, she had a wonderful classroom library. I actually stole her copy of Matilda. So you're seeing a theme here. Yes. <laughs> so I, well, yeah, watch out. Um, okay. <laughs> you're not wearing purple, though. No. So okay. I would say Dr. Mary Margaret Reed was the teacher who was most influential. Got it. Got it. That's great, John. Thank you. Demosa? Yeah. And that is so interesting that you bring her up, you know, at the end of answering that question, because I, I was going to answer in a different order, but I had a teacher, too, who was the primary person who got me to be a voracious reader. And her name is Miss Lichtenstein. And I think after teaching us, she went on to actually become a school librarian. But I had this teacher in first grade, third grade, and fifth grade. So she was kind of essential to me and my siblings' formation as readers. And she had a classroom library, and she had books in the library that were stamped with her name, Jay Lichtenstein. <laughs> and we still had these books in our home, so more confessions. Library. It would be a wonderful book if we yeah. interviewed people who are children's authors, librarians, who stole a book when they were yes. kids. And why did you steal that book? I had to. Have it. Candy, all right? <laughs> no, I had to have it or I had to finish it. And, you know, we still probably, if we went through our house, we could probably find some books that are <laughs> oh, stamped with funny. her name. You know, she used to read to us every day at the end of the day, first grade, third grade, and fifth grade. And some of them, the books she read were Tales of Fourth Grade Nothing, Blubber, Super Fudge, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And so that was kind of integral. But we also had a school library. It was probably the original books that were in the library from when the school was built, and they didn't have their dust jackets, but I was such a reader, probably from Miss Lichtenstein, that I didn't care. It was Nancy Drew, going to take it home, and I was going to finish those two books that we were supposed to borrow by the end of the day. And what school was this? Where were you? PS 106. Rockaway Queens. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Shout out to the public yeah. schools of New York yeah. City. That's fantastic. We're finding that librarians are an essential presence in kids' lives, in kids' reading lives, and success. Why do you think there is so much pressure on libraries with budgets, and how can we help turn that around to help people understand 
why libraries matter so much. I think that we have to see that librarians are champions for change and that the library is truly the heart and the soul of the school. And I think is what's so important is, and in, in you, you talked about this as well, that librarians have to be advocates for their programs, that we have to go out into the world and tell people about all the good things that are happening. And what is, in my opinion, most important is to have kids become champions for libraries. I'll never forget a kindergartner last year, her mom emailed me during the Memorial Day weekend. And she said, my daughter is going to have a lemonade stand this weekend. And the only way I would let her have a lemonade stand was if she donated the money somewhere. And the little girl wanted to donate the money to the library. And the reason she wanted to donate the money to the library was because how she felt when she was there, that she felt safe, that she felt happy, that she experienced the joy of, of literature. And I wrote back the mom and I said, well, of, co- of course, you know, Chiku can donate the money to the library. I'll take the money. And so on Tuesday, so yeah, Memorial Day was on Monday. So on Tuesday, the little girl came in with a container of a lemonade and inside was a check for $300 that oh she had goodness. raised over the weekend selling lemonade. And to me, that was really powerful because it showed that the school library had a place at the dinner table and libraries have to fight to have have a place at the dinner table. But if we have kids going home and talking about how in the library they experienced Pete the Cat or they experienced the Tale of Despero or whatever we did in that day is really wonderful that they felt like it was something that they wanted to share with their family. So I always fight for libraries to have a place at the dinner table. And you know, that story you tell reminds me there was a school, was it, I think in the past year where the students actually kind of did a read-in yeah, where in they Chicago. were yeah, out in the hallway because they were going to remove the librarian from the school or close down the school library. And the students, you know, said no, you know, so wherever the feeling came from the interaction that they had with the library and the resources that they were getting there, they felt very strongly about it and chose not to go to classes and sat out in the hallways reading for an entire day and made its way around mm-hmm. social. And everybody was trying to support what followed, which might have been a Kickstarter or a cha- I think it was a change.org petition. Mm-hmm. I think I you know, signed up for change.org that day. I was like, <laughs> I am with these kids. They are speaking up for their librarian. They don't want it to go. Tell us a little bit about uh, recommending books for children based on their interests or ascertaining their interests or turning them on to something Mm -hmm. they might not have known they cared passionately about. How does that process work? I like that you said interest right away because you put the focus on the child. Um, Donalyn Miller off the Book Whisperer often says that teachers, librarians put their own reading lives in front of the reading lives of, of students, that we don't always consider what that child needs. We often think more about what we need the child to do or what we need the child to read. So for me, librarians can be that true champion for choice, for access to books, for seeing the power of a good independent reading program. And when I think about recommending books to kids, I want to know about them. I want to know about their reading lives. I want to know about that book where they felt as though they could not put the book down. And when they went to the bathroom, the book went into them into the bathroom. And when they went to the fridge to get a drink of water, the book went to the, the, went to the fridge with them. That heart print book, that book that's going to stay with you forever. And one of my goals is to introduce, to, to help students students find their own heart print book. And when I'm recommending books to kids or when I'm working with kids, there's always two guiding principles. 
The first one is something that Matthew LaPena said when I interviewed him about Last Stop on Market Street, which received the 2016 Newberry Medal. Yay. He said, Reading is the fuel we need to grow hearts and minds. And I think about that all the time, that we have to give kids that fuel. Unfortunately, though, oftentimes teachers and librarians extinguish that fuel by saying you can't read graphic novels or saying you can't read Smile for the 50th time. There's power in rereading and there's power in reading the books that truly speak to you. So that's the first one. The second is something that Katie Camillo said in her Newberry acceptance speech for Flora and Ulysses. She said, we have been given the sacred task of making hearts large through story. We've been given the task of making hearts that are more capacious, hearts that understand the contradictions of ourselves and, and of each other. And whenever I'm having a bad day or I'm feeling frustrated about something, I repeat that in my head over and over again. We've been given the sacred task of making hearts large through story because that's what it's all about. If I go more than 24 hours without reading, I feel like somebody's like stomping on my heart. <laughs> yeah, I just, I yeah. don't, I feel out of place. And, and, and even if I could just sneak away for a moment and read two or three pages, all feels right in the world again. And, and we all in this room, we know what that feels like. Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. Demosa. Well, um, I'm going to be a little bit of a library nerd. And there are these five laws of library science that Ranganathan yeah. came up with. It's every book a reader and every reader a book. And so the idea is that for every reader out there, there is some book that is going to appeal to them. So even if somebody says that they don't like to read or maybe they don't read a lot, there's still you're going to be able to find that one book that's going to appeal to them. And then every book a reader is that for every book that there is in the library, there's somebody that this is going to match. And your mm -hmm. job as a librarian is to try to match the reader to the book. So one of the first things that I like to obviously ask is, what's the last thing that you read that you liked? And I'll definitely ask, what's the last thing that they read that they didn't like? Because it's really great to get into conversation about books that you don't like and, and figure out something that you can recommend. And I have, you know, kind of my go-to sweet spots with uh, graphic novels and nonfiction for people who are not necessarily avid readers. And I also take recommendations from kids. So a lot of times if I'm the person who's always recommending books and giving it to them and finding out if they like it and trying to recommend more, it really has to be a two-way street. So if I find that... One of my students or a library patron or somebody is telling me to read something, even the people that I work with, you know, I'll ask, what are you reading? And they tell me, then if they lend it to me or suggest it to me and I read it, and then now I can have a conversation with them about the book that they like, then they're more likely to take my recommendation in the future. Mm -hmm. And also I get a better sense of kind of what their reading interests are because I read something that really means something to them. So... You know, I try to to ask for recommendations and give them. And then you build a relationship generally yes. with your your readers so that over time you get better and better. And certainly when you when somebody comes back and said they didn't like it or they didn't finish it, you feel like a failure. I mean, you really feel like <laughs> try again. Yeah, you know, you want to hang <laughs> yeah. your head in shame like they didn't like the book. But when somebody comes in and especially, you know, working in the scholastic library, sometimes I'll recommend books to parents for their children and they come back and their child really liked the book and like they they won that night. Yes. You know, yes. mom brought the right and book. And then you're a hero. And then I feel like, <laughs> yes, you know, feeling. like I, and then I go around feeling successful. Yeah. So I try to have as many wins as I can. 
again. And yeah. I'd always say, you're, you're not going to hurt my feelings yeah. if you don't love it. But if it's the one and only Ivan, which is my favorite, <laughs> uh, like, it will hurt my feelings. Yeah. Yeah. I won't let you know yeah, that. Disappointment. <laughs> but yeah. that reading community, which Donald and Miller also talks about, seems to be essential. Mm-hmm. But I also want to back up. You use the word nerd, a library nerd. Yeah. It's a combination now of pejorative and a badge of honor. And I wonder, is it because it's uncool to be a reader or a librarian? Is that the no, case? I, I think it's very cool to be a librarian. You do. Do. Say, no, I, I think the tide <laughs> is turning. Is there a stereotype that still we're holding on to? I think there there are still stereotypes. Mm-hmm. It, it, it does annoy me when I, I read a, a, a recently published book and it still portrays a librarian as somebody who wants the environment to be quiet at all times, mm-hmm. that sees the library as a, a place where you aren't loud, where you don't make you know a lot of noise. It, it frustrates me because I go out and I try to show the library as a place that changes consistently and that moves forward with society and is, is a place, again, for joy. I just want to always see the library as a place of joy. Yeah, yeah. great. Yeah. And I mean, I think that there is a little bit of pushback against nerdiness or intellectualism, but just I try to choose to embrace it, that it's a big kind of factor of who I am. And I I do say it frequently just as a disclaimer for whatever I'm about to say, which is like, why on earth do you remember that formula? But um, I mean, I think librarianship is very popular these days. And you see a lot of people that are going into library school because almost like when I discovered the profession, I didn't realize that with my experience as a bookworm growing up and, you know, being an English teacher, that that was a career that was something that would be a perfect fit for me. Mm -hmm. I just assumed because I was an English major in college that I was going to be a teacher and a high school English teacher. Mm -hmm. And then I went and did it and I had a great time and loved it. But when I finally got a job at the library, I was like, oh my God, this is, this is is the job. And I, the first time I ever went to ALA, which was in 2007 and walked around the conference floor and saw all the different types of librarians and everybody had the badges for all the different (laughs) interest groups that they were in. And I went to conversations, we were talking about graphic novels in the library and how we were going to get them shelved, you know, independently and not in the 741.5s. And I just was like, okay, this is the career yeah. These that are your yes. this is yes. where I'm yes. I want to be. This is the kind of professional conference that I want to be going to. I'm a proud member of the okay. Nerdy Book Club. <laughs> when people say, Well, how do you join the Nerdy Book Club? I always say, Well, you do you read? Yes. Uh-huh. Well, then you're a member of the Nerdy Book Club. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very open group. Okay, yeah. I'm gonna join. I think I follow them on Twitter. Mm-hmm. But getting back here, you talked about interest groups. You're wearing a special badge today. Tell yeah. us about that. Oh, I've I've got on my Mockingjay pen. <laughs> Proudly okay. wearing it, yes. Okay, great. A proudly nerdy Mockingjay person. Well, even, you know, here working at Scholastic, uh, the um, in the library, I've got a bunch of buttons that my predecessor started this collection of buttons that are things from Scholastic, things from ALA and stuff like that. And sometimes I will grab a button off of the display and put it on. Like, this is my, you know, piece of flair that yeah. I'm going to wear today. It's also <laughs> a conversation starter. Yeah. <laughs> and I, actually, yes. the other day, I took a picture, a shelfie. I put on this button that I had there. It says, I heart my job. And there were people who stopped me in the halls and just said, oh, you saw your picture, you know. And I, just, I think we owe it to our listeners to give them your Twitter handle at this point. <laughs> <laughs> Mine is at Data Quilter. 
Oh, that's right. You love to quilt. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what about the library of the future? Some of you may remember the chef of the future on the honeymooners. Probably no one. But <laughs> what does the library of the future look like, John? I am horrible at predicting things in the future <laughs> and, and trends. But I will say, and I said this before, that the library will continue to change to meet the needs of its users. It's a thriving, living organism that will, in, in my opinion, do whatever it takes to make the library relevant, to continue to bring in users, and to continue to inspire users. So I don't know exactly what it will look like, but I know that it will change and adapt to meet the needs of society. I was uh, just want to say here, I was in Iowa for the caucuses with mm. our Kid Reporter program, and I was in what was called the Media Center. I thought, Okay, I knew they welcomed members of the press. I spent yeah. the first half of the caucus thinking this was for members of the media, but it really was their oh, probably the library. library. Media center. Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. So, what role does technology? <laughs> Clearly, it plays a, a bigger and bigger role. But how is that playing into yeah. your library? Well, I would say, you know, I, I just left being a practicing librarian. Well, I'm still a librarian, but where I was in a library every day with kids um, in September, and in, in my library. I was able to always take technology and bring it together with children's literature. That in, in a lesson, there was always an equal balance of, of technology and literature. And I think that sometimes librarians feel that they can only do one or the other, that I can either be really good with technology and I, and I unfortunately forget about the book sometimes. But I always encourage people to find ways to mesh them and bring them together and, and not forget how books make us feel and what books inspire us to do. Because I, I travel all over the country talking to teachers and librarians about the power of children's literature and the power of school libraries. And at the end of every presentation, there's at least 10 people who come up to me and say, thank you for reminding me why I became a librarian. Wow. And thank you for reminding me that it's important to continue to focus on books. And then we always have conversations about how we can t bring the technology and the literature together, but but not to forget about why we became librarians. Yeah, it seems the power of the story yeah. prevails in the end. What about yeah. you, Demosa? I mean, I do think that certainly we're seeing a lot with makerspaces and coding and libraries having information in common. So mm -hmm. I think a lot of what we're seeing right now is people kind of making meaning and making story in the library. So people are creating things that relate to, to stories and pop culture that they're passionate about. Um, I think also that, you know, the library used to, so it used to be a warehouse of knowledge. And then now it's a place where people are kind of creating knowledge. And I think that it's certainly in like academic environments like schools and higher education, we're seeing people get into digital humanities. So people are kind of now analyzing all of the different knowledge and, you know, taking, you know, data sets that, are out there about, you know, things that they can put onto Google Maps and kind of, you know, display information. And I think that that's really we're seeing it in higher education, but I think that it's really going to make its way more down into the schools where a lot of the tools that are, you know, kind of being used by professors and in incubation labs at universities are going to become more user-friendly. And you're going to see school librarians working with students to do things like create data visualizations. Mm -hmm. I mean, folks really love to see something that kind of tells a story just, you know, with one graphic. And 
those are the kind of things that I'm excited about because that's uh, Tim Berners-Lee, who's the guy who invented the web. You know, he talks a lot about linked data right now and that being the future. And so without that level of technical, um, ex- you know, expertise and part of the kids, I think that still that's going to be some of the stuff that we're going to start to see, you know, really um, people kind of going from storing knowledge to making knowledge to trying to analyze it. And I did write down um, the, again, library nerd, right? <laughs> so the if you think about the Dewey Decimal System, which mm-hmm. I don't know how many of us think about it frequently, but um, the way that it was taught <laughs> I dream the, about Dewey. the way that it was taught to me by one of my um, library mentors, right? You start off with the zeros, which is stuff like computer science information, basic facts and things like that. And then you get to the hundreds, which is philosophy. And that really answers the question, who am I? Right? Imagine a person that's just kind of coming into existence. So your first question would be, who am I? Philosophy. And then you get to the 200s, it's religion. And it's really like, how did I get here? So, you you know, you see you're in this empty space. Like, who am I? How did I get here? And then you get to the 300s, which are social sciences. And it's like you notice another person. So you're like, who is that person over there? You know, culture, like examining other types of folks in the world. The 400s are languages. So then the next level is like, how do I talk to that guy? So, you know, it's who am I? How did I get here? Who's that guy over there? How do I talk to him? And then you get to the 500s, which is science, which is kind of like, well, look at where we are. Now you're starting to notice your space. The 600s are technology, which is look at what I can make. And then you get to the 700s, which are the arts, and it's more like, look what I can create. And so in the arts, you have things like graphic novels and quilts and sports and things like that. The 800s, we get to the written word, literature, and you've got uh, poetry at 811 and Fiction, fiction at eight thirteen. And <laughs> I should, I, when my students yeah. would come to the woman, I would yeah. do the Dewey Decimal yeah. System. I'd say, "What do you call when you have an emergency? Well, you call nine one one. What do you so call good. when you have a poetry emergency? Yeah. You call eight one one. I love it. I okay. think I have an eight one one book out from the library I will right be stealing now. That, that is great. Um, but then the nine hundreds, which is the end, is history and geography, and that's like let's record the fact that we were here. So you know, you discover yourself, you learn other people, you learn a community communicate with them, you notice your environment, you start making things, start creating, start creating with words and sentences and letters and stuff like that. And then you want to record the fact that you're here. So I think that that's really kind of where we are right now with, you know, we're in the kind of the end of the Dewey system here now with the maker spaces and people creating things, whether it's tactile with fabric or with code or, you know, maker spaces where they're, you know, building things with 3D printers and stuff like that. And if we were going to have the next number, which would be the thousands, I mean, Dewey ends at, you know, 999, but if we had the thousands, you know, what would that be? You know, what's that new category going to be? Yes. Be anal- analysis. I'm going yeah. to steal that okay. one. Okay. <laughs> All right. So let's steal that. Yes, because the concept, as you said, of knowledge, I mean, it's changing given that there's a memory chip right in kids' hands. That's why the library will always be around, Mm -hmm. in my opinion, because it will continue to change. It will continue to adapt, that it doesn't stay one way because it must be that way. So I like how you you said Mm -hmm. to add another number. We're going to add on (laughs) to the system. And I think it's really going to be patron-driven. You know, Mm -hmm. before maybe the librarians were more the ones who were— you know, kind of giving the story time. And now it's kind of, you think about the flip classroom, it's like the flip library. The librarian is really facilitating and it's the people who are coming in who are making the stories. Mm-hmm. You're both on Twitter, as we said, and you're bloggers. How do you share the library gospel with your followers? 
Well, I'm on Twitter pretty much every moment of the day. <laughs> yes, <laughs> you haven't tweeted like, during this. You it must be going nuts. Yeah, I've been having all these tweet thoughts. I, I always tell people that I think in 140 characters, Twitter, and also in six-second segments, that's Vine. And I often will be walking around in the world going, oh, that's a, that's a perfect Vine, or that's a perfect tweet, or as I'm taking mail out of my mailbox, I'm writing the tweets in my head that I'm going to tell about my mail for the day. So for me, I just always have this need to share and to be a part of an online learning community. And when I was in my library, if let's say by noon, I hadn't felt the need to tweet about something we had done so far that day or to find something, I would reflect and say, wait, what am I doing wrong today? Mm. That there's nothing mm. super exciting that I feel I need to share what the student just shared with me or a lesson that's going really well or a lesson that didn't go so well. Uh -huh. And this is how I'm going to do it again next time. So I feel that my soul billows out more. I just stole a line from Katie Camillo's um, uh, <laughs> Rami Nightingale. She'll I'm be happy. She'll Camilla, be happy. If you have not noticed. <laughs> yeah. but, but in Rami Nightingale, the character <laughs> um, talks about how her soul is billowing out. And, and I Aww. feel that way um, so often. So f for me, my people, I feel, the people who understand me, the people who see the, the value of keeping up with children's literature, of keeping up what's happening in, in, in the world of technology, are on Twitter. And they inspire me every day to be better at my job, to take risks, to, to do more, to be better. And so I, I'm incredibly grateful for Twitter and for my blog. Without those two things, I wouldn't be sitting here today. Yes, and I'm incredibly Aww. grateful that you're both on Twitter because I love following you. Aww. Okay, and Mosif, some final thoughts? Oh, sure. I think that I I tend to try to listen a little more. I definitely don't put as much into social as I listen to what's going on, and certainly because I have about 700 students out there that I used to teach, and most of them are in their 20s, and a lot of them are in college. I try to listen for when people ask questions, and I almost treat social media like a reference place where I can do online reference. And so if somebody is struggling at 2 o'clock in the morning with something and asks a question, then I will be the one who posts the link to some article that is going to help them with that or, you know, gives them a link to a video about Zotero, some bibliographic software that's going to help them to organize their, you know, citations and get them into APA format or something like that. Just kind of listen to the people that I used to teach that are still out there and just be the one who's quick to, to respond. Terrific. I love that. Okay. I hope all of our listeners will go to their libraries now and go to the 811 section because I, <laughs> so. I yes. really agree with you yes. on that. All right. Thank you both oh, very, very you. much. This was terrific. Now we have on the phone Christina Holzweiss, the 2015 School Librarian of the Year. Thank you for joining us, Christina, and congratulations. Thank you. Thank you very much. What an honor. How did you feel when you heard the news? Um, I was speechless. <laughs> I for really once. was. I was Yes, exactly for once. <laughs> no, I'm teasing. I was just totally floored. I really was. I was I was flattered, I was honored, and I was just I think I had to take a deep breath. I really did. Since you took the deep breath, what do you want to tell the world about yourself? Ah, uh, well, personally, I'm a mom. 
Um, I have a great husband who's been sticking by me all year with all the uh, the crazy things that I've been doing. And I have three little kids at home, uh, Tyler, who is now seven, Riley, who is five and a half, and Lexi, who is three and a half. So I have the little ones at home, and I, I, I teach the big ones in school. I'm, I work at a middle school, and I've been in the middle school for about 21 years. <laughs> oh, my goodness. And Yeah, yeah. I was an English teacher first, and now I'm a school librarian, and I've always been in middle school. I've, I've taught evening high school. I've taught summer school things like that, but I've, I've always been full-time middle school. I should ask what got you interested in middle school, but I am interested also in what got you into the library, out of the classroom and into the library. Well, I was uh, a middle school English teacher for nine years, and then I went back to school and I received an educational technology certificate, and that was around 2000. And I really loved technology. I really loved uh, bringing it into the classroom, but at that point, it was basically bringing to the kids to the lab and using PowerPoint and saving PowerPoints on floppy disks, not the big floppy ones, uh-huh. <laughs> the small floppy ones, and loading each computer with the floppy disks. I taught my kids how to cite using EasyBib and Noodle Tools, and I took screenshots because we didn't have internet in school. So I took screenshots, and I, I didn't even have a projector. So I would I would gather them around my desk, and I would show them how it would be when they go home <laughs> and uh, cite their sources. And I really, really wanted to use technology more. I, I taught kids how to use how to write web pages with HTML. I, again, this was 17 years ago. And I really wanted to use more technology, and I wanted to help students and teachers but I knew that administration was not for me. I just could not, I, I couldn't see myself as a principal or a director. I always saw myself in the classroom. So for an English teacher who loved reading and books, who loved technology, the library seemed the most obvious place to go. Yes, and you clearly have such a passion for your students, for teaching. How did that come about? I really have joy when I see a child learn and when I learn something from them and even when I learn from my colleagues, that motivates me to keep on going. And when a child comes into the library or even, you know, when my, when I was teaching English into the classroom and they are a different person when they leave, that's pretty magical. Yeah. Well, you have a range of students at your school. How do you meet all of their needs? I believe that good teaching is good teaching for every level. We do have about 15% of our students are English language learners, Mm -hmm. and we do have uh, some uh, special education students, a wide variety of ranges from life skills to self-contained and resource room, and they just have various needs. And I feel like using color-coded items in our makerspace, using visuals, using sound, multi-sensory uh, approaches to teaching, that's good for all different students. When I taught English, I had special ed and ESL kids in my class, and I had honors kids in different classes, and I used a lot of the same techniques because middle school kids are still developing their learning, and I feel like they could all 
participate and learn better visually and using auditory and, mm-hmm. you know, color-coded. In the library, I, I have a number of e-books that we use, which are fantastic for all students. They enjoy them, but especially the special education students and the English language learners, and they can listen and follow along and not feel that they're not part of the class. They don't feel that they are reading a, a kid's book in a way. They're reading the same book as everyone else, but now they can have it read to them. So basically making accommodations I see. and having kids participate with the group. And you also mentioned in there the makerspace. You have a makerspace in your library. Our listeners may not be familiar with that term. Everyone has their own definition of a makerspace. My makerspace is, I believe, a place where kids can come and just interact with hands-on learning and enjoy themselves. And I think a lot of people would agree with that. In my makerspace, we have um, hexagon tables. We have really cool orange chairs. We have cabinets full of low-tech things like uh, beads, and I have connects. I have racetracks. I do have some robotic equipment and electronics that I keep in my storage room that I loan out to students when they're here. And I have literally boxes of cardboard (laughs) and (laughs) bottle caps and toilet paper tubes. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's great. So it's a range. (laughs) Got it. Okay. I'm sure your students learn so much from you. What kinds of things do you learn from them each day? I learn, I think, how to be a better teacher, a better librarian, I think sometimes even a better person when I realize that we're not just teaching students, we're teaching children, we're teaching our future, and who's in our classroom today is going to be somewhere else tomorrow. We, at middle school, most, most kids go back to elementary school, they remember the elementary school teachers, or they go back to high school. Mm-hmm. Most kids do not come back to L- to middle school. <laughs> they just don't. <laughs> they don't. And because you go, you know, high school, you know, you, your teachers, you know, they're helping you get into college, and you always remember your kindergarten teacher. But middle school is a really tough age. I did not like middle school when I was in middle school. It was called junior high, uh-huh. and I really didn't like it at all. <laughs> so I get to relive it every day now. <laughs> oh gosh, you're really brave. <laughs> yeah, but now I get to do it. In a fun way, and now I enjoy it. But as a kid, I didn't like it. It was a, It's a really tough age for kids yes. to transition. Yes, it, it certainly is. And as you said, these kids are our future, and yet libraries are under siege to a certain extent in schools due to budget cuts and lack of awareness of just how important they are. What do you say to people when they question whether a library is necessary or feel they don't, there's no need for a library in school? You know, it's very interesting about libraries. They are so important, but they are so... Librarians, I feel, are chameleons. We blend in and we integrate so well that sometimes you really don't notice. And I don't mean that, you know, people don't care. It's just that we, I think we collaborate really well. We work well with others. And we were so seamless that you really can't divide us. You can't really take us apart from the learning and the classrooms and things like that. And I think people don't realize how important we are. And I think if you took a library away, and especially a librarian, you're really lacking so many things, especially now. 
with technology, it's so important, digital citizenship, and even just the kid who doesn't want to hang out with at lunch period because he's being, being bullied, or the girl who doesn't have access to a computer at home because her parents can't afford it, and she's here working on a research project. And I don't think people realize how important we are. It's, it's, I think it's very frustrating. I think yeah. it's very frustrating for a lot of uh, librarians, but we know the good work that we do. Yes, we recognize it as well, and it's an honor to speak with you. I just have one last question for you. Now you are on the selection committee for this year's School Librarian of the Year Award. What are you looking for in a candidate? I'm looking personally for someone who believes in the future of our kids, someone who's willing to dream big and try things, whether if you know whether it succeeds or not. It's the process of doing and learning things. I've failed many times, wow. <laughs> and I've succeeded, but I've learned more from my failures. And I like to know how people learn from their failures, learn and grow and develop great programs, but those programs didn't happen overnight. I like to know how they've overcome obstacles and how they could be a role model for today's students to show them that you really need to work hard and dream big. Great. Thank you so much again, Christina. It was great to speak with you and we wish you continued success. Thank you so much. And thank you for joining us and for sharing in our mission at Scholastic where we believe that the right book in a child's hands can open a world of possible. Special thanks to producer Megan K. Safer, sound mixer and editor Daniel Jordan, and music composer Lucas Elliott Eberl. I'm Suzanne McCabe. We look forward to sharing more Scholastic Reads next time.